and welcome to the Vital Signs of Democracy podcast. Is democracy threatened in America? Because we never thought in our lifetimes we would be asking that question. Yet, here we are, seemingly more polarized than any other time in our history. So our goal in this podcast isn't to tell you the news, but to help us understand how the stories we hear and believe are crafted for other reasons and how that impacts our belief in a democratic form of governance. We're gonna slow down and take a deep look at motivations, interpretations, and yes, the facts themselves. I'm Debbie Lynn Molyneux, co-publisher of The Fulcrum. I'm also the president and CEO of Bridge Alliance, which is a coalition of almost 600 organizations who are working to bring about a thriving, just, and healthy democratic republic. You can learn more about our work at bridgealliance.us. And I'm David Reardon, Director of Vital Signs of Democracy. Every two weeks, we publish a rating of the threat level to democracy in this country based on our unique narrative analysis of the news. And we pay particular attention to how both Make America Great narratives from the Biden Democrats and the MAGA Republicans are garnering support from their voters or not. You can find our latest rating at vitalsignsofdemocracy.com. So, David, it's it's been quite a two weeks since we last recorded, and a lot's been happening. I, I wonder what you have uh, chosen to focus on today. Well, Debbie Lynn, in the two weeks since our last podcast, as you just said, there have been a number of stories, including an initial legal response in Manhattan, New York, to the question that has been hanging over the American justice system for the last two years. And that question is, Can an ex-president be indicted for crimes he allegedly committed during his 2016 presidential campaign or while he was in office? And for those that have been following the circus that has exploded in New York, no. After months of speculation, Alvin Bragg, the district attorney for Manhattan, has indicted Donald Trump on 34 felony counts of falsification of business records. What I want to highlight today is the three completely different narratives that Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC told about this unprecedented legal action when the indictment was released to the public, and why this case may turn out to be a real test for democracy in America. One of the things we look at continually at Vital Signs is the quality of America's national debate about potential threats to our democracy. And we pay close attention to the level of uncertainty and confusion that is being expressed by all parties and to what extent those threat levels are being triggered by cable news outlets promoting completely different narratives about what any particular news event means concerning our democracy. We also claim that if the level of uncertainty or fear gets too high in the American people, history has shown we are much more likely to lose faith in the American justice system's ability to hold bad actors accountable. And if that fear becomes too great, it follows that citizens will look for a more autocratic leader to fix the perceived problem and help them feel more secure, sort of like they did when they elected Donald Trump in 2016. All right. Well, so let's let's dive into the narratives that you discovered. What are they? Okay, so let's do it. According to our narrative analysis, there were approximately 10 different narratives that were deployed in the reporting 
on the Manhattan case against Trump. Here's a brief summary of the three most popular ones. One, this case is a political prosecution brought by the Democrats to impact Donald Trump's chances in the 2024 election. This narrative promotes the idea that the reason that Trump got indicted in Manhattan was not because he had committed a crime and like any normal person would have been indicted for that crime, but rather, as this story goes, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, was collaborating with the Democrats in falsely charging Trump because they did not want him to run or win the 2024 presidential election. Two, there was nothing new in Bragg's indictment that had not been previously reported. This led to some cable anchors and legal experts claiming they were disappointed in the written indictment when they finally got a chance to read it. They didn't seem to think that it identified the crimes that Bragg was arguing bumped the false document's misdemeanor charge to a felony for illegal election contributions or tax fraud. Three, this Manhattan, New York case should not have gone first because the other cases pending against Trump suggest more serious charges like his inciting the January 6th attempted coup or the stealing and lying about top-secret documents at Mar-a-Lago or his attempt to intervene in Georgia's 2020 election. I really felt like this case in New York was just a little bit too tawdry and less serious than the other cases. And so I kind of wished that the other cases went first, if only because of the seriousness of, the, of what we assume to be forthcoming charges. I can certainly understand that sentiment. I was kind of in a similar place until our narrative analysis reminded me of what could have happened if the women that claimed they had extramarital affairs with Trump were not silenced. That story would have come to light at the end of October, just before the election. So here's the question. If the voting public had known about Trump's affairs and his alleged cover-up of the payoffs to these women, would they still have voted for him? Now remember, he won by only 85,000 votes in three battleground states. But we're getting a little into the weeds here. I, I want to get back to the three different narratives that Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC were pushing concerning the Trump indictment and why they could pose a threat to democracy in America. Let's get started with the analysis. And I think you want to start with Fox News. So one of the things that was immediately noticeable on Fox News was that Tucker Carlson, you know, one of Fox's main commentators, did not make much of a comment himself the night after the indictment was released and Trump was booked as a criminal defendant. This was unusual because for months, Carlson had lied to his audience about the results of the 2020 election and the seriousness of the COVID pandemic in nightly editorial pieces that he did directly in the camera. Here, he did what CNN and MSNBC usually do, which was to bring on an expert and let them tell the Fox News story that he wanted to promote. Here's a clip of what the Fox News legal experts said about Bragg's case against Trump. So this entire proceeding seems to be clearly rigged uh, in a political manner. And somewhere along the way, Tucker, Americans may have not noticed that the Democratic Party 
has basically turned into a gang of thugs. There is no concept of due process. There is no concept of even uh, with a straight face attempting to tie the charges to something that you can prove in front of a court right. of law that could stand up on appeal. And so if there were ever any more evidence than, than we already suspected, I think the way that today's proceedings went really underscores the political nature of this. And if I were to make a comment about the president's remarks today, I would say that what was missing from that is pointing out that this indictment is really aimed at the American people. It's aimed at President Trump's supporters. It's aimed at terrorizing people away from supporting a particular candidate. And it is meant to remind all of us that if they can do this to a former president, they can concoct false charges with, without even articulating what the charges are against any American for political reasons. And that is a form of emotional terrorism, Tucker. It should really be terrifying to all Americans. In this case, Tucker Carlson's legal expert was Hami Dillon, who he introduced as a famous civil rights lawyer, which seemed a little unusual to me. In fact, Ms. Dillon is a lawyer, but also has been a Republican Party official, was the vice chairman of the California Republican Committee, and during the COVID pandemic brought numerous unsuccessful court cases that challenged states' stay-at-home regulations. She was also the co-chair of Women for Trump. So if we were to take her story to a logical conclusion, what I'm hearing for the future of democracy itself is that through this indictment, we are more at risk for public political prosecutions, which will undermine our belief in the rule of law, which is then damaging our trust in the application of equal treatment within the judicial system. And where previously claims of judicial malfeasance were largely racially based, we are adding another claim of politically motivated malfeasance. And that's what I'm hearing from your kind of analysis on this. Let's move on with this analysis. What, what did you see on CNN? It was interesting. As we listened to the narratives that CNN deployed in their reporting, it's important to remember that for a little more than a year now, CNN has been making a very public move to transition from their previous sort of left-center orientation to a much more neutral center. I mean, they got rid of their most opinionated liberal anchors and replaced them with panels that feature a broad range of opinions from right to left. Now, there's nothing wrong with this, but let's look at how this impacts the way that CNN is covering the Trump indictment in these short clips. Here is CNN Jake Tapper's lead question to conservative lawyer George Conway. He seems to us to be wondering out loud if the charges in this case are enough. Now to discuss conservative attorney uh, George Conway. Uh, George, uh, Trump could be the first former president in American history to be arrested. Do you think this case, what we know of it, involving Stormy Daniels and the falsification of business records, do you think it really rises to the magnitude of such an unprecedented step? In this next one, he's reacting, obviously, to a Trump supporter by bringing in a sidebar story about Trump's case being similar to the one that Senator John Edwards was found not guilty for. But I can tell you from my experience, if the defendant wasn't Donald Trump, this wouldn't be brought by a DA. Uh, that that's just the truth. Now, I keep hearing that and that yet I remember, I don't know if, how similar a case it is, but I remember the, the prosecution of former Senator John Edwards. Um, and that was during the Obama administration. And that was for not exactly the same thing, but it was about uh, 
fundraisers and donations and uh, a girlfriend, an extramarital yeah, girlfriend, it, 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 were they similar? In this one, Arnie Cohen's first take is that the indictment does not specify the crimes that will be used to bump the false documents misdemeanor charge to a felony. The indictment does not say what that second crime is, which is completely inexplicable to me. The entire point of an indictment is to tell the defendant, here's what you're charged with, here's what you're defending against. What we found in our narrative analysis of CNN's coverage that these clips are examples of, CNN injected sidebar stories into their coverage that really didn't directly address the questions about the legitimacy of the actual indictment itself. It seems that in order to fill their 24-7 news cycle, CNN was running a number of sub-narratives that, in a sense, were designed to be clickbait for their audience. Instead of initially conducting a careful legal analysis of Bragg's indictment, like we'll see next when we get to MSNBC, they instead kept floating the idea that Bragg's case may not be enough to warrant this first indictment or that there was something missing from the charges that would result in Trump being found not guilty. Now, regardless of whether Trump is convicted or not, the danger in our view with this kind of clickbait is that it can create a kind of haze of confusion about the legitimate questions this unprecedented prosecution raises. And as a result, if CNN's audience walks away feeling overwhelmed with too many sensational sub-narratives or just gives up trying to cut through all the noise to form an opinion about the actual charges, in our view, democracy in America is not being served. So the future that this narrative would foretell, they are using, that CNN is using tools of trivialization and distraction. And because of that, we're going to lose faith in the judicial system as a mechanism of accountability for everyone. It feels to me also like this feeds in a little bit to the already deep-seated belief that we have in, in American justice and culture that the wealthy are treated differently. And so CNN is kind of like writing that belief, if you will, uh, choosing to cover the sideshow instead of the circus itself. One last thing I want to address about CNN is this. Why would CNN be doing this? If you're buying my analysis that CNN is deploying these kinds of clickbait headlines designed to trigger fear in their audience that Trump might not be found guilty, the reason you do this is the same reason that Fox News admitted to in lying to their audience about the results of the 2020 election. You deploy these methods to attract more viewers and increase your profitability. Whether what you are promoting is accurate or not, doesn't seem to really matter. If that is the case, and these kinds of alternative narratives persist in the reporting on the Justice Department's attempts to hold bad actors accountable for crimes against our republic, that could result in even greater polarization in America as blue and red audiences act on completely different narratives. And that, in our view, as we've said, is just not good for our democracy. You've previewed that there's something different coming out of MSNBC right now. So what is that? To be fair, MSNBC did deploy some of the same types of these more sensational sidebar narratives about the ins and outs of this case. But early on, as the actual written indictment was released, they really focused on looking at the actual legal detail of the written indictment that CNN and Fox seemed not to. 
So here's a clip of MSNBC's legal analyst, Andrew Weissman, answering Rachel Maddow's question about Bragg not specifying the charges in the actual indictment that would elevate the false business documents charge, which is a misdemeanor, to a felony crime. What we heard as the intent of her question is that Bragg's case didn't seem to measure up to what everybody had been expecting. The first thing to know is that the um, the statute in New York that says you can bump this up to a felony requires that you have an intent to commit some other crime. You don't actually have to commit that crime. So that's why you wouldn't necessarily need to charge it, and that's something that Alvin Bragg said. Also, if one of the crimes that you're thinking can be used as that bump up is a federal crime, then that is not something that you could charge in state court anyway. Mm. Um, now, this really goes to Chris's question um, in the last segment, where he sort of said, isn't this really still a, a tenuous case? Isn't there a problem? Because there's, there's, this is really a legal issue in this case, more than a factual issue. And this is where I actually was impressed in, in terms of what was charged here, because there's so many different ways in which the DA has laid out how he can get to a felony. He has suggested in his oral remarks that one way is the federal campaign laws. Another way is the state campaign laws. A third way is he talked about AMI issuing false statements, and that this was in furtherance of those false statements. And a fourth way was tax charges, exactly what you had laid out, uh, Rachel, in terms of the scheme to have Michael Cohen um, commit tax fraud. Um, so those give the DA a lot of room. So even if there is an attack on one or two of them, particularly the state crimes of tax fraud and the AMI false statement charge seem very solid. It seems very hard to imagine a motion to dismiss that's going to knock out all of that and reduce all of the charges to misdemeanors. So in listening to that clip, I'm hearing that Weissman is concluding that there is a logical reason to charge Trump, number one. Number two, that Bragg's strategy is both normal and reasonable, perhaps even routine. And in projecting this narrative into the future, it would seem to be the most supportive story for strengthening democracy. We're going to let the story unfold. We're going to allow the judicial system to work as it's designed, regardless of the prosecutor or the defendant. Is that about right? Yes. Notice how quickly you summed up the case. MSNBC in our narrative view was much more focused on what the audience needed to know to form an opinion about the case at all. And that's important because this case has a lot of moving parts, although in the end, it's going to come down to an answer to a very simple question. Does Alvin Bragg have the evidence to prove the 34 felony counts he has charged Trump with? And do they constitute an attempt by Trump to deny voters in the 2016 election the truth about his extramarital affairs and his attempt to illegally cover them up. So that's what our narrative analysis told us about the three different stories cable news networks told about the Trump indictment when it was made public. Hopefully, in understanding the differences and the motivations we've pointed out behind each one, those of you in the audience will be able to navigate through all the competing noise around this case and keep your eye on how it is truly impacting our democracy or not.
But let me just say, in the same time period, there were three other major stories of importance that you want to get to, Debbie Lynn, right? And what struck me about them is that they are part of a larger meme that we have talked about before. And that is the possibility that America could descend into some kind of a civil war between the red and blue tribes. Where do you want to start? A few shows ago, you wondered what would happen if states stopped following directions from federal agencies. And we ended up with this kind of a, a federal administration state legislature dynamic going on. And now a federal judge in Texas has ruled against a Food and Drug Administration drug approval from 20 years ago. And then a different federal judge in Washington state directed federal officials to not hinder access to that drug in at least the 17 states where Democrats have sued to keep the drug's availability intact. This is, of course, the drug Mifepristone. I hope I say it right. It looks like the current Supreme Court will get to rule on the federal agency compared to state law conflict that is now surfacing. And there's just a reminder that, that mifepristone is not used only for abortions. It's also used as emergency contraception and to treat Cushing's disease. So the unintended consequences of undoing a 20-year-old FDA approval of a drug that's used globally for women's health could be, well, consequential in many ways. And how this impacts the health of our republic is also interesting in that the rights that women were allowed for 50 years are being taken away. And we're actually giving state governments more control over women's bodies in the name of protecting a potential human. I'm really glad you're looking at this. This story of two conflicting federal court decisions about the availability of an abortion drug is at the core of a competition that is currently heating up between conservative federal judges in red states and more progressive federal judges in blue states. Add to that, we have a conservative Supreme Court that has already challenged the authority of federal agencies like the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to mandate that states take action on climate change. Or in this case, the Federal Drug Administration approving an abortion drug for all 50 states. We're beginning to see in our narrative analysis the beginnings of a larger states' rights movement that seems to want to do away with the authority of the federal government altogether. And considering that Biden Democrats are winning the national elections and the MAGA Republicans are controlling a number of red states, this could lead to further conflicts, in our view, between federal and state governments that, in the worst case, could lead to a new type of civil war. Yeah, absolutely. And on the, on the more hopeful side, what I am wondering if this particular issue will become then a motivating factor for voters, you know, will it or will it disenfranchise women from participating in elections? I think, you know, we wait and see. But this is one story that I'm following closely. So the next story that I'm watching is this ongoing drama in Tennessee. And, you know, the facts are really kind of hard to pin down because of all the partisan spin. But the Tennessean reported this. House Republicans accused the trio of state legislators of violating decorum rules when they led a raucous gun control protest from the House floor with a bullhorn on March 30th, as thousands of demonstrators descended on the state capitol calling to restrict access to guns, end quote. 
And so this was in the aftermath of the six people who were killed in Nashville at a school shooting. And that included three children. So on March 30th, three days later, the protesters were already at the state capitol. Some were inside and some were outside. And those who were inside were making noise from the balcony as an education bill was debated. They were supporting the idea of more legislation for guns in Tennessee because Tennessee has some of the loosest gun laws in the nation. And after completing the education bill debate, an hour long recess was called, likely because of noise from the protesters. And it was at that moment that three legislators went to the well, to the podium, and led the protesters in a chant. These are the facts as recorded by the Tennessean, and you'll find that in the notes for this podcast. You can link right to it. And because this was against the rules of decorum, two of those three legislators were expelled from their newly elected seats. And what's interesting about this to me is how this tragedy like a school shooting, which should bring a community together to fight violence and to, to come together for healing, could so quickly lead to another issue like the expulsion of elected leaders for so minor an offense as leading chance in the chamber. The Tennessean further reported that there were no arrests, no injuries, and no property damage. Yet the response from the Republican-controlled state house was swift and very harsh, in my opinion. What this, this tells me about the narrative for our future is that as power is shifting in our country, the old guard, the people who've held power for decades are scared. And that's what this overreaction indicates to me. I trust the people of Tennessee will speak in the upcoming elections about the will of the people. So for me, the narrative is momentarily concerning, but long-term I'm actually hopeful the people of Tennessee will correct, will course correct. We're seeing this more and more in state capitals, aren't we? I mean, loud, raucous demonstrations that seem to be the last recourse for lawmakers that just don't feel like they're being heard. And these groups are from both red and blue tribes. Some of these demonstrators have even come to the state capitals fully armed. Now, we've always had a tradition in America of civil disobedience. So this latest one in Tennessee is not that unusual, particularly because it's following yet another mass shooting where children have been murdered. In this case, however, as you're pointing out, there seems to be something deeper or even older in play. The states' rights movement that we discussed in your first story seems to be pushing both red and blue tribes into highly charged combative situations. And in this case, it's not that the MAGA Republican legislature passed a new law that put more armed guards in the schools or refused to take any action on banning assault weapons. That is their constitutional right. It was what they did next to the two black men that raised their voices in the way that they did. What they did next was an overreaction. And I think that overreaction in the long term is going to cost them. I don't know a parent uh, who, especially parents who have lost children to gun violence, who will elect anybody who stands with open carry right now or AR-15s or anybody who stands with a gun lobby. Long term, that's my hope for the nation, that we actually come back to some common sense. So here's my last story. You know, I really leading up to, to the April 4th election in Wisconsin, I had not paid any attention to what was going on there. 
so I was aware that there was a Supreme Court election that it could move the shift the uh, the balance of the court from the conservative to the progressive Democrats. And what really excited me about that, though, was how much people were paying attention to judicial elections themselves. So, you know, how lawyers become judges that kind of vary state to state and jurisdiction. So some are appointed and some judges are elected. But the very fact that two judicial candidates were making national news to me is another good sign for our republic. The voters of Wisconsin ultimately decided to shift the power of the court in a way that uh, advocated or strengthened democracy, supporting the will of, of people. And ultimately, I believe this is going to help us trust in the rule of law. So while Wisconsin is very much a swing state, their Supreme Court is likely to hear cases in the next two years about abortion that stem from a pre-Civil War era law that, were, that was reinstated when Roe was overturned. And then the Republicans recently redrew the state's legislative maps and like all parties in power, gerrymandered it to continue winning in perpetuity. Maryland, the Democrats do the same thing. Lastly, should there be election lawsuits over the 2024 presidential election, it's going to be a different court that hears that case. And so I am leaving this week actually very hopeful while it's been tumultuous. I feel like the rule of law and the will of the people is starting to reassert itself in the direction of democracy. And I can't wait till your meter shows it. Well, I know you've been crazy busy with all this, but everyone should take a look at vitalsignsofdemocracy.com when we get done. We did issue a lower threat rating for this last scan. It went from a high threat level to a moderate threat level. So as you surmised, there was more good news for democracy during these past two weeks, as opposed to being potentially threatening. And having said that, I think we've done all we can in this episode to explore the narratives that impacted our democracy in the last two weeks. Well, and, and I think one of the things that I want to leave our listeners with is this. Whenever we're looking, taking in the news and the facts, think about if this is true, if this narrative that they're telling us is true, you know, by cherry picking facts, et cetera, where does that lead us? And if it doesn't lead us to a stronger democratic republic, reject that narrative and look for a better one. We can choose. We're at that moment when we actually get to choose. <laughs>